0: Within our Christian relationships. And one thing that we've learned above all is this is that you cannot have unity where selfishness and conceit exist. The only way to have unity is to be in the midst or to embrace humility. And what I mean by that is this, is is I mean that in order to be unified with others in our relationships, whether it's our husband, wife, whether it's people in church, we must be humble in the, fa- in, in the essence in which we recognize others as more important than ourselves, and that we make it... Uh, uh, and make it our job, our our responsibility, not only just simply to seek to meet our own needs, but to be able to seek to meet the needs of other people. This is what true humility looks like. In fact, Paul uh, gave us the ultimate example of this type of humility in the life and in the work of Jesus Christ, Jesus humbled himself from heaven. When he stepped out of heaven, he, he, he refused to hold on to his rights or cling to the rights that he had as God, as creator, to be able to come to earth. He humbled himself when he was here on earth by not only becoming a man, but also becoming a servant, a bond slave to mankind. And not only that, but right when you think he couldn't sink any lower, he does by humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, which was the ultimate Humiliation or of any other type of death was to die as a criminal on the cross. Now, if you miss the point of all of Jesus uh, descending down, of him coming down, of him humbling himself, let me wrap it up with you I- I- as simplistically as I possibly can. Here's the point. If Jesus Christ, who is infinitely greater than we are, and he is infinitely greater than who we are, yes? We agree with that. If he was willing to humble himself, to the ultimate extent, in order to serve us, then we ought to, as children of God, as Christians, little Christ, followers of Jesus Christ, then we ought also to humble ourselves in service to one another. Because no matter how far we may have to humble ourselves to be able to do that, it's not nearly as far as Jesus Christ was willing to go to be able to serve and to save us. Amen? So that's, that was the point overall. Then you were like, well, why didn't you just say that last week? It would have saved a lot of time if you had just said that. Well, that's just in review as we unpack God's word. But so God, Christ humbled himself to the point of death. He ended up in a tomb. But how many of you know that he didn't remain there? He did not remain in the tomb. When we read the word of God, Jesus humbled himself all the way to the grave. He did not remain there. He humbled himself, but then God raised him up. Last week, we looked at Jesus' humiliation, and this week, we want to look at his exaltation. He went really low, but he was raised up really, really high, and we're going to take a look at that. Two things we want to see this morning before we observe the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Number one, Jesus' ultimate ascent, not Jesus' ultimate accent, all right, but Jesus ultimate ascent it seems to make much more sense. All right, verse nine. Therefore God has highly exalted him. Now, Paul gives us this very clear kind of step-down picture. Each step that Jesus took to humble himself from coming from heaven to earth, and then on earth becoming a man, and then from being, being a man to being a servant, and then stepping down to the point of death, even death on the cross. And we see that in, in Paul's writings just a couple of verses before this. But when you look to the New Testament, and you get to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you begin to read, you can very very clearly distinguished Jesus steps up his well his ascent upward stop and think about it for a minute his his descent brings him and leaves him in the tomb but he doesn't stay there. After three days, he, ri- he rose again, right? He rises again. He, he, he is in a glorified body. He spends 40 days here on earth, appearing and reappearing to over 500 different people over the course of that time. That's his first step up. Then he gathers all of his followers together, and there he is on the side of a mountain, and then he gives them some last instructions, this little thing called the Great Commission. Maybe you've heard of it. And he tells them to go into all the world, preach the gospel, and baptizing men in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? And then he says, oh, by the way, I'm about to go up this way and just want to let you know that I'm going to come back in the same way that you saw me go up. And so as he begins to ascend up, it's step two. He goes from here to heaven. Then we see the third and final step. He's in heaven, but then he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And so what we find is that Jesus at this point is actually God has fulfilled and answered the prayer of Jesus Christ in his high priestly prayer. In John chapter 17 and verse 5, before Jesus goes to the cross, he prays this. He says, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. After his death, burial, and resurrection in his ultimate humility, God raises him up and gives him the same glory that he enjoyed from eternity's past. Got that? Got that? Now, we got to get our arms around this. There, there, there's, a, there's kind of an example in Scripture that I love to read. Ever since that I've seen it, somebody draw, drew my attention to it, that kind of it, it gives an example of this. Remember when Jesus is at the Last Supper? I'm I'm giving this illustration because it's about what we're about to do. And in Last Supper, and so they all come in, and all the boys, the fellows sit down, and Jesus is sitting in the place of honor. It's his feast. He's the one who's called this thing. And they all come in with dirty feet, right? Moms, you know what this is like, right? All right. Your kids come in, you're like, go wash your hands, go wash your hands, right? Well, in that day, it wasn't, they did wash hands, but. It was more ceremonial, but anyway, but they would come in and they would actually wash their feet or somebody would wash their feet. A servant would wash their feet. I guess on this day, they come to, 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 to sit and to be able to dine, but they can't find a foot washer. Where's the foot washer? We don't know where the foot washer is. Now, I'm embellishing here, but they come in. There, there's no foot washer. Nobody says, well, I'll do the foot washing. So they all come in, they sit down, and they extend their dirty feet. So Jesus Christ... Steps aside from his position. He takes off his outer clothing. He wraps himself in a towel and he kneels down and he begins to do what a servant does. He hums himself as a slave and he begins to wash the feet of his disciples. And when he's done, this is what John 13, 12 says. It says, and when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments, he then resumed his place. He resumed his place back at the head of the table. What Paul is telling us here is that after Jesus humbled himself to the point of death and death on the cross, he resumed his place at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning supreme in heaven. He returned after that service. Now, to give you more of an example, because we have to understand these. and Look, this is all theological. I get it. Somebody's got to run around and go, what does this mean to me? Just listen to Jesus, all right? Just listen to what Jesus does. To understand the infinite gap between where he sunk and where he was raised. Stop and think about it. Just I could give you so many examples. Let me give you one. Right before Jesus goes to the cross, he's there and he's surrounded by his disciples. The, these men that he has spent so much time with over three years, poured his life into, hand-chose. And, and, and at this particular point, one of those disciples, by the name of Judas, uh, betrays him with his mouth. Just a short time later, his chief disciple Peter denies him, not once, not twice, but three times with his mouth. Then his disciples, when he's arrested, go scattering. They, they shut their mouths and they don't even give a word of defense for Jesus Christ as they scatter and they hide behind closed doors. And then Jesus is on the cross. And when he's on the cross, he's surrounded by a huge gathering crowd of people who with their mouths in unison cry out, crucify him, crucify him. How low and humiliating he sunk and humbled himself. But then we read in the book of Revelation that when he was exalted by God at the right hand of the Father, all of that changed because at that point, there is a myriad of angels surrounding him saying the words, Revelation 5, 12, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. What was the change? What what brought about the change? Well, we know why is God now exalting him in this way? The answer to that is the very first word of the verse in verse 9. See the word? What is that word? You've got to look at the Bible to know, unless you memorized it. All right, the word is, people are still looking. They're like, um, you've got to look in the Bible. Okay, go ahead and tell us. All right, it's therefore. All right, see the word therefore? He's saying, therefore, God exalted him. All right, God exalted him. But what that means is he exalted him in light of what Jesus Christ just did. What did he just do? He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. In light of his humility, God then raises him up. And what's interesting about what we see with Christ is that we see that this is a principle that we find throughout all of Scripture. Throughout all of Scripture, we see this idea that whoever humbles himself, God exalts we see it in Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14. Familiar words to many of us. He says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sins, and will hear, heal their land. Psalm 10 17, You have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline the ear. You'll listen to them. So the first one, he'll heal them if they humble themselves. He'll hear them if they humble themselves. James 4.10 says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. He says, I will help those that humble himself. Now let me ask you a question. Is there anyone in here that is in need of healing? There's a need of being heard by an almighty God. Is there anybody here who needs help from God this morning? How do you get it? How do you, how do you go about receiving his help? His, his, his he says, to humble yourself. To humble yourself. Before him, that, how do you receive the help of God? How do you receive something? You, you, you humble yourself. Now, the question is, what does that look like? What, what does it mean to humble ourselves? And remember, it, it's not putting on this feigned humility of going around and telling everybody how bad you are and how worthless you are, right? You need to be careful with that, by the way. Because some of you are going to go around, man, I really stink. And someone's going to call your bluff and go, dude, you do stink, you know, yeah, right? Instead of people saying, no, 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 you're so good. They're going to call your bluff, it's not us feigning this. Do you, do you want to know how we humble ourselves before God? We humble ourselves before God by submitting to his lordship. That's what humility looks like. How do you know that? What did it say of Jesus Christ? He humbled himself and became what? Obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, How do we get the help of God? We humble ourselves in full submission and of obedience of Jesus Christ. Now be very careful. This does not mean that we are working for his grace. We are working for his mercy. All it's suggesting, and this is what the word of God says, is you're not doing anything for it, but you're humbling yourself. You're recognizing that you're a sinner. You're recognizing that you've blown it. You've recognized that he is Lord and you want to follow him. And he says, when you're in that position, God gives mercy upon mercy and grace upon grace upon grace to those who follow in the example of Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing that he says. James says 4, 6 says, God rejects the proud but gives grace to to the humble. So here's kind of what it looks like just a little bit. An individual needs help. They have gotten themselves in a pickle because of their own sin. They are now suffering. They, their marriage is a wreck. Their children are in rebellion. Their, their, their finances are a wreck. And, and they realize they come to the point that they are suffering. They need help from God and they cry out, God, I, help, I need help. Help me, God, help me with all of this. And, and, and at the same time, they're crying out for the mercy and grace of God they're refusing to submit to him. They're refusing to humble themselves to him. So for example, if, if somebody sits back and says, hey God, I, I, I want to make sure that you get me out of this financial wreck, but they're going to continue to be disobedient to what the word of God calls them to do with their finances. And he says, don't expect any grace, any mercy, any help from you. You you and I must put ourselves in the position it's not working for, but when we come and we say, okay, God, I've made a mess of my life. I've done it all wrong. I set myself aside to do it your way. The Bible says he takes that grace and he aboundingly gives it to us and he pours it on us, lifting us up, exalting us out of the muck and the mire that we found ourselves in. So what do we do here? He says the first thing in Christ is we see Jesus' ultimate ascent. He humbled himself, and Jesus raised him up to the same position that he had held before his humiliation. Second thing. Now, I need you to pay attention, close attention to this, because this is more theology. That's right, bad word, theology. Just stick with me through this. The second thing that we see here is that Jesus, we see Jesus' special honor. Now, notice verse 9. He says, and he bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Now, we're so familiar with this passage. Many of us have just never really thought, well, what is the name that is above every name? We read it and we're like, well, I think I know what it is. But but which of the many names is the name that God gives him that's above every name? You know, Jesus has a lot of names. Right? You've probably heard the song where it gives like this long list of names. He's got a ton of names. We, we see in the Bible that he's called light, the lamb, the way, the bread, the living water, the alpha and omega. Which one of these is the name above every name? Some have suggested that in, in many times we think, well, maybe that's just the name Jesus. That was the name that was given to him at birth in Luke chapter 1. We, we read that the, the angel came to Mary and told her, hey, look, you're, you're, you're going to have a child. The Holy Spirit has created this baby within your womb, and you're going to conceive this particular child. And you will name him what? You'll name him Jesus. So is that the name that is above every name? I think the way that we answer is we look very carefully at the context here. Notice what Paul says in verse 10. Follow along, if you will. He says, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord. Lord is the name. Lord is the name that he gives them. Let me, let me flush that out for you just a little bit. In the Greek language, the Greek, the Greek word for Lord is kurios. And the reason that I bring this in is because it's kurios. Just kidding. That was a bad Greek joke. And so we'll just move on from there. Um, and the reason is because the Bible that Paul would have used is not in English, it was not in Hebrew, it would have been the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. That's what he would have read. That's what Christians would have read during that day. And within that Greek translation, this word, "Kyrios, Lord, exists over, over 6,000 times. And the majority of the times that it's mentioned, it is referencing the name of God. And anyone at that time that was a good Jewish man that understand the Greek language, he understood that every time he read the word "Kyrios" or Lord, that in the original Hebrew, that that was equivalent, the same thing as using God's name of Yahweh which is God's unique, special name for him and him alone. For example, in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, but God calls himself, he says, I am the Lord, that is Yahweh, that is my name. So this is a word that was reserved for God. The Jewish people wouldn't even say the word out loud in fear that they would contaminate the holiness of his name. They wouldn't even write it in the scrolls. Instead, they would abbreviate the name because they didn't want to saturate it and and, and muck it up with their own sin. This was a precious name only reserved for God. God says he exalted him above everything and he gave him a name above every name. He gave him what? His name, Lord, Curios Yahweh. And then you sit back and you go, okay, great. But what's in the name? What, what, what comes with this new name with him? And so we begin to ask questions. This is how you study the word of God. You begin to ask questions. Okay, with this new name, does he, does he have new power, greater power? Does he have a greater position? Does he now have greater authority? And it almost seems like that, does it not? But let me answer as biblically and straightforward as I can, no. By receiving the name Yahweh or Lord, he is not now more powerful he is not now more authoritative. He, is not, he doesn't have a greater position than he did from eternity's past. You say, how do you, wh- why do you say that? It sounds like that's what the word of God is saying. This is why theology is important. Notice, Jesus Christ said, the, the scriptures we studied last week, it said that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Stick with me. Equality with God, he was equal with God if he somehow has to become more powerful, if he somehow is able to become more authoritative, if he somehow is able to, 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 to have more authority over other people, then guess what? He wasn't God to begin with. He had all authority. He had all power. Then what in the world is going on here? What is with this whole name? Let me say it this way. There is no change at this point in God's exaltation of his son In position, power, or authority. Did you hear that? There's no change. But there is a change in the recognition. In the recognition of his position, power, and his authority. What the Father does now, in light of Jesus' humble obedience, is he now draws special honor to Christ that was not previously there. All right, let me me unpack it for you. Somebody's like, well, you need to. All right, well, here, here we go. Old Testament, is Jesus present in the Old Testament? Yes, but he, have you ever noticed he's kind of like hanging out in the shadows a little bit? I mean, it's never like, hey, this is Jesus. And everybody's like, really, this is the coming Messiah? No, we don't see it. We see these shadows through, through it. Example, you go to the book of Genesis. God says, we will create man in our own image. Well, guess what? Jesus is hanging out in the shadows there. He's part of the us, the making in the, the own image. When we get to Abraham, Abraham has promised that he'll be made a great nation and all the nations of the world will be blessed through him. He begins to doubt after a little while. What happens? Three different individuals come to him at one time. Two are identified as angels. One of them is identified by Abraham as, note this, the Lord, the Lord. Who is that Lord? It's Jesus who appears to him. What what do we find? Again, Genesis chapter 32, Jacob's crazy story. Jacob is wrestling a man until daybreak. Is is this the strangest story? He's wrestling this man. He won't let him go. He goes, let me go. He bangs him in the hip. You know, Jacob is like all crooked hip walking around. He goes, I won't let go. Who is this that he's wrestling with? Jacob says himself that he had struggled with God. He wrestled with Jesus right? That'll teach you, right? <laughs> I'll take your hip out, you wrestle with me, right? And so he, he's gipping around. This is Jesus. We, we look in the word of God again in Genesis chapter 32. No, we see him wrestling. In Daniel chapter 3, we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They refuse to bow. Where, where are they thrown? They're thrown into the fiery furnace. What does Nebuchadnezzar say? How many guys did we throw in there? Uh, three, king. Then why is there four dudes down there? Why are there four guys down there? And he says, now this is a pagan speaking. He looks and he says, And the fourth man had the appearance of a son of the gods. Who was in there? Jesus was with them. We look again and we see the mention all the way through the Old Testament of this angel of the Lord. Who is this angel, this mysterious angel of the Lord? We don't see him clearly. Who is he? He's Jesus. We see within the book of Joshua, the commander of the Lord's army. Joshua just see this brilliant, blazing, glorious uh, soldier in front of him, and we know that this is Jesus. These are pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus Christ. They are what theologians call theophanies, or more specifically, Christophanies. They are appearances of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Now, when we look back to the Old Testament, we see him more clearly because we have the what? The New Testament. So we look back and we're like, oh, yeah, that's Jesus. We, we get that. But if you didn't have the New Testament, you look back, and a lot of times you're like, who is this figure? Who is this person kind of moving around and working in the shadows? Then we get in the New Testament, and the veil is kind of, kind of opened up. Jesus comes, and it's all about Jesus, right? It's about his birth. It's about his teaching. It's about his miracle. It's about his life, death, his burial, burial and resurrection and his sacrifice. All his healings, all of his teachings, all right there. But note this, but still Jesus is not seen as he fully is at this point. Instead, his glory is still cloaked by his what? Humanity. Now that he has died and he resurrects, God exalts him to his original place. And when he does, now no more shadows. Now every light of God is drawing attention to all in the world and all of the creation to his son, Jesus. No more holding back, no more shadows. Now fully seen, full glory, full completely being bestowed upon him. Now after God's self-human, the father draws the attention of the whole universe to his son. At John's baptism, he begins to do this. There's a voice that comes out of heaven for everyone to hear that says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And then he says, listen to him. God now does all that he can to showcase his son. Jesus said in John chapter 8 and verse 54, he said, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is the Father who glorifies me. Now, look, stop and think. Just take one more step with me. What is all that the Father does to highlight his son? Uh, these are from all different scripture passages, but let me tell you what he what he does to highlight his son in the New Testament. God raised Jesus from the dead. He gave Jesus a name above every name. He, Jesus gave all the authority in heaven and on earth. Matthew twenty eight eighteen says that he gave him authority to judge. John uh, two twenty seven says that he placed him at the right hand in heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority. God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to head over everything in the church. Ephesians chapter. 1 verse 20 through 22. In way this is what God is doing. He says you want to know me? Look at him. Go to him. You want to know how to come to... why is Jesus why is God now who is at the forefront of everything in the Old Testament now stepping back a little bit and now Jesus who is in the shadows is now stepping forward. Why? jesus said it the best he said because i am the way the truth and the life nobody comes to the father except through me god says you want to know me you have to deal with my son he's the judge he's the creator he's the savior he gave himself for you what do you do with him What are you going to do with this Jesus? You want me? You have to deal with him. If you've seen him, you've seen me. We're one and the same. Do do, do you see what's happening? Do you see why the shift is highlighting to now him being exalted? Because all need to come and see and know that he is Lord. That he is Lord over all. Now, notice a couple things just really quickly. Verse 9, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, what is he talking about? He's talking about the future. Right now, he's 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 pointing to Jesus. Everything's pointing to Jesus. He's highlighting Jesus. The spotlight is on Jesus. You want to come to God, you have to go through Jesus. And he says he's exalted him so high that one day in a future time, that every living being, rational human being, angels in heaven, saints who are there because of the grace of God, believers in Jesus Christ in heaven, Those on the earth, believer and unbeliever at his second coming in judgment, those under the earth, which is the demons, those who were lost and spending an eternity in hell, along with Satan himself, one day, listen to this, will bow and will proclaim in unison that Jesus Christ is Lord. Some will profess that. Some will bow the knee and profess that out of joy, willing joy. Some will be forced to do it with consternation and hatred and bitterness and everything, even Satan himself. But he will, God says, he will bow and he will kneel. And did you notice this very last sentence? I love this. Here's kind of where the application of this last point comes in. He says, he says in the very last part of, of 11, and he says, To the glory of God the Father. He says there is, and it's very simple. As God exalts his son, the more we recognize his lordship, the more it pleases God. Let me say it to you just kind of simply like this. Uh, I say oftentimes in the beginning, and I don't do this all the time, but when we're doing the welcome, sometimes I'll say, use a phrase like this, man, we're here to make much of Jesus. That's, what, that's why we exist. Sometimes I'll make this kind of statement. I'll say, hey, listen, we want you to come. We want you to enjoy the music. We want you to enjoy the preaching. We want you to enjoy the fellowship. But when, when, when you leave, what we want you to know more than anything else is this, is that we're bananas about Jesus, that we exist to make, to know him and to be able to make him known. Why? Because the more we recognize the lordship of Jesus Christ and highlight Jesus Christ, the more that God is glorified. Why? Because he's the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through him. I want to use one thing before we close this up. It's interesting to me that the name above every name that he gives is the name Lord. Now, there's some argument there because back in Isaiah, there is this idea of Lord and Savior that we see in the Old Testament. And people often say that. We often say that. Hey, listen, we love Jesus. He's my Lord and what? Savior. We say that, right? Let me tell you what the mix-up, though, is. The Bible presents those two names and those two ideas as the same side of one coin. That's faith in Christ, proclaiming him Lord and Savior. Let me tell you what has messed us up because of false theology and this is why I'm preaching this the way that it is. As many people within our community, maybe you're sitting here now, you think that those are two completely different events. You might think in your mind that you can make Lord the Lord Jesus Christ your savior And then at some other point down down your life, when you begin to grow enough, then you'll make him Lord of your life. Stop and think about that for a minute. So I'm going to accept and I'm going to take and I'm going to benefit from his death on the cross, but I'll have to think about whether I'm going to kneel willfully and to proclaim his name to be a name above every name. I'll wait on that for a little while. That's not what salvation is. The Bible says of those who come truly in faith, receive Christ not only as their Savior, but as their Lord. They come and they submit themselves to them, and they say, God, I'm not going to live my life the way that I've been living it, it, what was right in my own eyes. I'm not going to do things that I want. What I'm going to do is I'm going to humble myself and now live my life the way you say I ought to live it, for what you say I ought to live it for, and that is submission of Jesus Christ. He is Lord and Savior. Did you get that? And that's what we come this morning. We come at the Lord's Supper, and we're about to take the blood, not the literal blood in the bread, but those things that are symbolic of his, bread, of his body and of his blood. And what we do when we do it is we are exalting the name of Christ. We are recognize him as Savior. We are recognizing him as Lord. And before we take it, you know what we need to do? Make sure our hearts are right before God, that we are living in submission to the truth of God's word. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and we honor you. Dear Jesus, we come right now, and Lord, I know lots of theology, but God, there's so much richness in this. So much richness. God, there are some who are sitting there saying, God, I need your help. way to help to receive the, the, the help of God, the mercy of God, is to submit ourselves to you and the lordship of you. God, the way that we please you in our life and we want, those that are born again want to please you with their lives. God, let us once again submit ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? Would you stand? Our brother's gonna pray, play. He's gonna sing. Would you respond? Make sure your heart is right before we take the Lord's Supper this morning. Go ahead. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to ask our ushers to come at this time as we observe the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. We do now come to observe the ordinance of the Lord's Supper given to us to celebrate in memory of his broken body and his shed blood. It is said that on that night before he was betrayed, at the conclusion of the feast...